I think of design thinking as in many ways core to, to the discipline of public health. It's how I learned how to do research and how to design interventions was that process of starting in the community um, and listening to lived experience, prototyping, going back, altering, and recognizing that none of this stuff is ever static, right? We need to evolve as society changes, as our community changes. Um, it, it, it's just, it's essential. Um, and I think there's also this other side to design thinking, which is a, an embrace of innovation, which is also, to me, a core part of the discipline of public health. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Podcast Brunch Club. Hey there, podcast listeners. Join us at Podcast Brunch Club. It's like book club, but for podcasts. Every month, we put together a thematic podcast playlist And then chapters in over 70 cities across the world get together to discuss the list and swap podcast recommendations. Find out more at podcastbrunchclub.com. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with Dr. Megan Rainey. Megan is an emergency physician, researcher, and advocate. Her work focuses on the intersection between digital health, violence prevention, and population health. She's leaving her position at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, as the Deputy Dean of the School of Public Health. She's going to be Yale University's first Dean of the School of Public Health, where the school is its own independent, self-standing school. She was the founder of the Brown Lifespan Center for Digital Health and co-founder and senior strategic advisor for Affirm. AFFIRM is an acronym. It stands for the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine. It's currently now affiliated with the Aspen Institute. Now, Megan has been a visible voice through the pandemic, but even pre-pandemic. And in today's conversation, we focus on her work in firearm injury prevention, given that we are finishing up Firearm Prevention Month. Megan graduated Harvard University summa cum laude with a Bachelor of Arts in History of Science. She was a Peace Corps volunteer in Cote d'Ivoire, that's the Ivory Coast, prior to attending med school at Columbia. She graduated AOA and received the Leonard Tao Humanism in Medicine Award from the Gold Humanism Society at graduation. She completed her internship, residency, and chief residency in emergency medicine, as well as a fellowship in injury prevention research and a Master of Public Health, all at Brown University. Let's get to the conversation. Listeners have been following your professional path, and all of us are tray excited that you are going to be the new dean of the School of Public Health at Yale. So walk us through what will be happening July 1, 2023. So on July 1st, I am going to be stepping into the deanship of the Yale School of Public Health. Um, I will be, despite the school's tremendous storied history, I will actually be the first dean of an independent school of public health at Yale. Um, I will be separating out um, the school from the School of Medicine, where it has traditionally existed kind of within the larger larger med school, um, creating an autonomous structure, um, working with the folks there who are already outstanding and inspirational, to grow the vision and more the science, the education, and most importantly, to grow the impact. You and I have spoken about Cote d'Ivoire 
the Peace Corps, a little bit about substance use prevention and treatment, and then injury prevention. How to you do these all make sense and lead you perfectly to this sphere that is public health? Uh, you know, Risa, I will actually take it back even further to sixth or seventh grade <laughs> when I organized um, a, food, a canned food drive for the elderly uh, in my hometown of Buffalo, New York, um, who were living with tremendous uh, food insecurity. Um, I think I have always had an attention to and um, intentionality behind uh, addressing health disparities and trying to create conditions that allow us all to be healthier. I didn't know that was called public health back in sixth or seventh grade, but that thread has kind of carried me through. Um, you know, the Peace Corps experience was formative in so many ways. Um, one of the big ones was around, as you and I have discussed, around kind of humility and respect for community. Um, but it was also big because it's actually what triggered my entering this field in this profession. Uh, so during my time in the Peace Corps, it was the late 90s. HIV AIDS was rampant um, in Cote d'Ivoire. We were a major trucking route um, through West Africa um, as truckers came down from the north to the south. They would uh, unfortunately spread HIV. Um, there was no access to antiretrovirals. Uh, I saw both the impact of gender-based violence and gender disparities very firsthand, but also the impact of lack of access to treatment and all of the ways in which that affected discussions about prevention, um, obviously life expectancy, uh, family structures, um, had friend, many women friends who were infected and eventually died, left orphans behind, were shunned by the, you know, the, the whole kit and caboodle. And that, that experience, um, I think, in many ways shaped a lot of the way that I approached public, the way that I approached medicine, but also public health. It certainly shaped why I decided to get a medical degree in addition to a master's in public health, because I wanted to be able to treat, um, because I saw the importance of that individual level treatment in addition to addressing the st societal structures, although both matter deeply and not everyone needs to do both. So we need people that do one or the other also. The name of the podcast is The Visible Voices. And I ask my guests, when did you first realize you had a voice? When did you start using that voice? And for you, there's a third. How did your voice change and evolve through the pandemic? Um, I think I first realized that I had a voice uh, in fourth grade. I had an amazing, amazing teacher named Dr. Vanderwerf who encouraged me um, to grow my voice um, and to use it, who was really one of the first teachers to help me see uh, maybe what was distinctive about me. She did that not just for me, but for others as well. Um, but I would really say that that was, that was the moment where I realized that I had a voice. When I learned to use it, I'm actually going to put together those second and third questions because it has been a journey. Um, again, going back to middle school or high school, I used my voice in some ways, college and others. I organized um, an alternative senior gift when I graduated from college at, at Harvard um, that was uh, money that got donated to the um, Committee for the Equality of Women at Harvard. It was fighting to have equal numbers of tenured women and male faculty. P.S. They're still not there. Um, so, use, you know, use my voice in some ways as, as an undergraduate. And then, of course, it has evolved and I think expanded. 
one of the big things about the way that I think about using my voice is that I have tremendous privilege in having the opportunity for my voice to be heard and therefore my um, oblig- there's with privilege comes also an obligation, which is to use that voice on behalf of those who may not have the chance to have their voice heard, but also to use that voice in order to try to amplify other voices, that it may not actually at this point in my life be about my voice being heard, but rather making sure that others have the chance to have their voices heard instead. One of the things I've seen and heard, and the listeners as well, is your voice throughout the pandemic, um, on the news, on social media. And I, quite honestly, have noticed that you actually are more verbal. You are louder Uh, not literally, figuratively, and you're more assertive in terms of your advocacy. And correct me if I'm wrong, we as physicians are sort of taught, like, don't take a stand, don't be political. And one thing that the pandemic and the murder of Mr. George Floyd at all exposing the structural racism in our country really pulled many of us from not speaking up to speaking up and using our voices for advocacy. So I'm wondering how that sits with you. So I'll actually, for me personally, it goes back many years earlier. Um, it goes back to, um, the work that I do around firearm injury. Um, I had been doing work on violence prevention, obviously, since my Peace Corps days around gender-based violence, um, and as a emergency medicine resident and then early attending, obviously saw the effects of that firearm injury every day in our emergency department, had been very specifically told to not talk about it. Um, because, and we can go into that, um, about all the reasons why I was told to keep my voice quiet. And there were a couple of um, really um, kind of paradigm-shifting moments, inflection points, um, personal cases that I took care of personally, as well as, of course, structural and societal things, Sandy Hook being one of them. I I will credit my chair at the time, Brian Zink, with giving me space to start to use my voice on that issue, with providing me with that kind of political or power, like that protection. And, and you know, people will talk about sponsorship. He doesn't necessarily sponsor me into the spaces where I started talking about firearm injury, but certainly kind of gave me the cover to, to allow me to do that. Again, that goes back to the sense of privilege. Not everyone has a chair, a boss, a dean, um, who allows them to do that. And it has been lovely over the course of the last 15, 20 years to watch more and more folks join me and you and others in the value of using our voices. And, and I do think that that accelerated as a profession, both medicine and public health during the pandemic. It is Gun Violence Awareness Month and a firm, a firm at the Aspen Institute is on the agenda or as we say in Rhode Island, a gender, uh, to talk about. So walk the audience through the acronym and tell us about it, the formation of this really important initiative. Thank you. So AFFIRM, or the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction in Medicine, um, was founded by me and Chris Barsati, who's an emergency physician uh, in southern Vermont slash northwest um, Massachusetts, um, back in 2017. The creation of a firm came from years of conversations between me, Chris, and a, at that point, a relatively small group of other physicians and public health professionals about the importance of addressing firearm injury as a public health problem. At th- that point, if we go back you know, six years, 
um, it was not something that was frequently talked about. You know, there were some publications in JAMA or AJPH. Um, certainly the American College of Physicians had taken a stand, but it was still seen as quite controversial. Um, and we felt it was really important to create an organization that was not specialty specific, that was not um, uh, institution specific, uh, that was not even profession specific. We were intentional about including, again, not just physicians, but um, public health researchers, nurses, teachers, survivors, um, to, to create this kind of larger societal group committed to raising awareness of, of gun violence as a public health problem. And that was our mission. And in the early days, it was just about getting folks to join on with us and, and getting societies and individuals to kind of be part of us. We had a research committee and a education committee. Um, and then, you know, cr- started to create these coalitions. And then 2018, um, was, of course, that infamous NRA tweet telling physicians to stay in their lane and not talk about firearm injury, thanks in part to the coalition that we and others had built over the prior years um, that allowed us to create the This Is Our Lane hashtag and have it take off. And then from there, I think you know, the rest is history, but also a history that's still being created around how we mobilize those of us in public health and health care um, to address firearm injury using these time-tested techniques um, of, of public health. Yeah. I think as emergency physicians, we feel much more of an obligation and a responsibility to speak about gun violence. And I'll think about patients that come in who um, are having suicidal thoughts. On the roster of questions that we ask routinely, one of those questions is, do you have access to a gun? Do you have access to a firearm? Where are you with educating about safe gun storage? So I think this question is, there's a two parts to this. The first is around that screening of high risk patients, those who are suicidal or depressed, those who disclose domestic violence, those who have dementia, um, those with a history of being in physical fights, screening them for maybe just parents of kids, um, asking about the presence of firearms in the home and whether they are stored as safely as possible. That's step one, and actually there was a recent Kaiser Foundation, Kaiser Family Foundation survey that reported that only 14% of adult Americans, including 14% of parents, report that they've ever been asked by their physician about whether or not there is a firearm in the home, and if so, how it's, how, whether or not it's stored safely. So I appreciate you saying that this has become part of your standard question for folks that are depressed or suicidal, but for the vast majority of physicians across the United States, this is not yet standard practice. And that's for a variety of reasons, because we don't know how to ask, because we're afraid of the response, and because we don't know what to do with an answer. Same thing as domestic violence screening. We all know that it's important. It's a USPSTF recommendation, and yet study after study shows that most of us don't ask, and it's because we don't know what to do with the answer. Also, we don't have time, et cetera, et cetera. So let me go then to the second part of your question about the counseling. I think it is a key skill um, I don't know that every physician is going to be comfortable with it, although I would love, or every nurse practitioner or PA or nurse, I would love to see that happen. Um, but some are going to be more comfortable than others. And the reality is, is that for families with firearms in the home, the physician may not be the most trusted messenger for providing that counseling. I think the most important thing for us as healthcare professionals is to provide a harm reduction approach 
right? So it is not, um, if we do screen, it is not about passing judgment um, on the choice to own or not own a firearm. It's about providing advice on how to reduce the risk of firearm injury for either our patient or people in the household. And perhaps it's about knowing resources to send them to rather than feeling that we ourselves have to know all of it. Again, some of us will feel comfortable with that conversation, and at this point I do, but this is where I spend most of my life. Um, I think it's, it's tough for us to have conversations about nutrition, about smoking, about um, motorcycle helmets, about you know, name, name the issue. I think of it as being in that same category. It's a core skill we need to learn in med school, but we also need resources, um, particularly for those more, more complex cases like domestic violence or community violence. Private citizens own approximately 430 million guns in the United States. Unfortunately, only 46% of firearms are stored safely, and less than two-thirds of gun owners have received formal gun safety training. And, and I think this is one of the greatest spaces for partnership and collaboration. Um, one of the big things behind a firm and behind all of my work is around the fact that we can only do it together. This is not an us versus them debate. This is about firearm owners and firearm non-owners, whichever one you happen to be, um, working together to keep our kids and our communities safe. Safer storage is one of the biggest such ways. There are a lot of barriers for families. Most people own a gun for personal protection. And so if we're talking about safer storage, it's about making sure that it's done in a way that allows people to feel like they can still protect their family, given that that's the reason for owning a firearm. Um, there's great data behind the provision of lockboxes. If we provide them for free or for a discount, it's one of the best ways to improve safer storage, to have those um, uh, boxes that people feel that they can still access quickly if they need them. Doctors Annie Andrews and Lois Lee joined me recently for an episode this month on gun violence awareness. And I asked them, and I'd like to pose the same question to you is, you know, your children, uh, when your children have a play date or are going to do a sleepover, do you ask about whether there are firearms in the home of wherever they're visiting? It's a great question. Sometimes, not always. Uh, I, I'll be transparent. I mean, I also live in a very low gun ownership state, your home state of Rhode Island. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Lois had a very similar response, Massachusetts, Annie, the opposite response given South Carolina. So it's a lot of geographic variability, understandably. You're moving to Yale and you're leading the Yale School of Public Health. You've spoken about the collaborations, the Venn diagram overlaps with the School of Law, the School of Medicine, the undergraduate. I'm excited for you is design health design, and that focus on the end user, be it the patient, be it the healthcare professional, uh, be it the community worker. And I'm wondering the extent to which um, the design framework that's sort of posing the question, brainstorming, coming up with a solution, prototyping, iterating, reiterating, back and forth, and then you end up coming up with a product, uh, a decision, a device, a fill in the blank that's better than had you not done this sort of thought process. Where does that play a role for you? And how excited are you that this is public health plus design? Well, so they also, I should highlight there, they have, there's a great school of architecture. Um, there's a great school of music. There's a great um, divinity school. 
Uh, and those are all partners as well. I mean, I, I think of design thinking as in many ways core to, to the discipline of public health. It's how I learned how to do research and how to design interventions was that process of starting in the community um, and listening to lived experience, prototyping, going back, altering, and recognizing that none of this stuff is ever static, right? We need to evolve as society changes, as our community changes. Um, it, it, it's just, it's essential. Um, and I think there's also this other side to design thinking, which is a, an embrace of innovation, which is also, to me, a core part of the discipline of public health. So yes, and. Yeah. You've spoken about the sort of the steps when um, performing public health research and when you, the way you think about public health. And you have highlighted innovation and also entrepreneurship. Talk about the role of money and the business that is required to run a school of public health. <laughs> to run a school of public health, to run a public health program. So I think that we think of money in public health as being this dirty word. But the reality is, without money, none of us can put a roof over our heads. None of us can buy quality food. None of us can pay for medical care. You know, it, for better or for worse, m money is kind of the, the core of making sure that people can live in health. It's also the core of making sure that the programs that we care about are not just done as pilots, but are put in place in perpetuity. And so if we don't think about that part of it from the get-go, we're dooming our programs and our innovations to failure. And the same thing is true for a school. Whether you want to talk about it or not, I need to be able to pay staff a living wage. I need to be able to maintain my buildings so that if there's a water leak or if um, we discover, God forbid, asbestos, right? If, if just the carpet wears out, that we can afford to fix that. Um, and of course we need money because we need to be able to provide financial aid to students, recognizing that public health by and large is not going to be you know, the highest dollar um, profession, depending on what you end up going into. Uh, I think you may have heard me say before that I actually did not get a master's in public health until I was many years kind of out of my original MD training, partly because I didn't want to take on more debt and recognizing that that's true. And so we're almost excluding so many brilliant, diverse perspectives from the field of public health because we don't have adequate financial aid resources, that's another part of the money that goes into it. And, you know, we need to be good stewards of money also. There's similarly a responsibility for us to use it well, um, use it for good, but also to use it responsibly with good accounting practices. <laughs> um, I don't want my money being kind of absconded with and I don't know about it. So, all those things are, are, to me, also part of the, the core educational mission of a school of public health is a comfort with those discussions and a comfort with uh, being able to identify sources of funds and then to direct them appropriately and responsibly to make the world a better and healthier place. Of what accomplishment or award are you most proud? Being a mom of two incredible children. And, 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 a, and, and I will say, and a wife of an amazing husband to whom... Uh, will have been married for 20 years in September. Congratulations. Your legacy. I don't know yet. <laughs> um, I mean, I hope that my legacy will be that I left the world a better place than I found it and that I left those who I've known feeling 
beloved and um, amplified and elevated. Um, I hope certainly that folks will look back at my tenure as dean at the Yale School of Public Health and feel that I did everything in my power to set this school up to be uh, a school that is um, among, if not the most influential on human health, that our faculty, our staff, and our students and alums are set up to use the knowledge and to use the resources and privilege to make the world a better place too. Um, time will tell if, if, if I achieve that. Um, and, and who, you know, but also who knows what comes next. If you had said to me five or six years ago, Risa, that um, I was gonna be a Dean of the School of Public Health as my next thing, this was not in my dance card, but it's just an, I'm so excited and lucky to be doing this. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks, Megan, for making time in your schedule as you were sashaying from Providence down to New Haven to speak with me. It was such a delight, and congratulations on your new dean position. Audience, if I could provide you with three summary statements, three points, three highlights of our talk. Number one, as physicians, we have a voice. We have a voice that should be used for advocacy, for prevention, for education, and to make sure that there is not misinformation. Firearm, firearm prevention. It's really interesting because in med school, in residency, I was never taught to really ask a lot about firearms, but now it is standard in the emergency department and in emergency medicine that we talk about firearms. If we have patients that come in that are feeling suicidal, we ask them, do you have access to a firearm? Why? Because patients with access to firearms are at higher risk for completing these feelings of suicidality. Storage and safe storage. I have to say that I don't know a lot about the safe storage of firearms and it is in our scope of practice. It's now something with which we must become familiar. Finally, many hats. Many of us can wear many hats. Megan is a researcher. She's a writer. She's a speaker. She's an emergency physician. And now she's a dean. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media, at Risa E. Lewis, and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.